Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The music industry is facing numerous challenges with the rise of artificial intelligence, or AI. There is a potential for AI to replace human musicians and producers. There are also AI-powered music generators that have become increasingly sophisticated as they are capable of creating music that is indistinguishable from music created by human musicians, as recently experienced with fake Drake. Using AI in music production brings us to ethical and legal implications of who owns the copyright to the music produced by AI. Should AI-generated music be considered original? Or is it just a derivative of work based on existing music? These are some of the complex questions I discuss in today's episode with my guest, David Hughes. David is a music business and technology expert with over 30 years of experience in the music industry as the former chief technology officer of the Recording Industry Association of America, and while he was with Sony Music, he helped pioneer the music industry's transition to mass online distribution. Today we talk about the transformative potential of AI, the disruption we are already seeing, and what the industry can do to prepare for AI in the music creation and production, as well as the challenges and opportunities that AI represents for the music industry. David, thank you for coming in today to be a guest to explain to Shane. Tell us about your background in the music industry. Okay. I'm going to go back a little bit before that. Okay. So I grew up in Canada. That's why you're so nice. That's Yeah, you know, please, thank you, all uh-huh. that stuff. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry about. <laughs> uh, in high school, I went to Japan as an exchange student, which seems irrelevant, but will be relevant in a moment, perhaps. Um, I ended up going back to university in Japan and to graduate school. And when I finished my master's, I went to work for Sony Corp headquarters in Tokyo. And I was there for about six years. And the last job I had was um, I was tasked with coming up with a strategy for the global distribution of Sony's music catalog on the Internet. Oh. Technically, at the time, we called it electronic music distribution because we had ideas about satellites and all kinds of other stuff. But it quickly became apparent that the Internet was the way to do it. And um, the Internet was a little bit behind in Japan. So I literally had questions from executives like, oh, the Internet, is that like email? Yeah, that was the world we were living in at that time. No wonder it took them a while to think that people were actually going to do this. They're like, no, they're just going to keep listening to cassettes. They're just going to keep listening to CDs. CDs, Making big money from CDs at that point. So, So, but in 1996, Sony and IBM paired up to start doing some trials. We did something called the Madison Project, which was uh, named because Sony and IBM were both on Madison Avenue in New York City. Mm -hmm. And it sounded like the Manhattan Project, so we thought it was cool. Right. And uh, that was electronic distribution over, um, at that time, the only high-speed network we could find was the Time Warner Roadrunner cable network, because this is, this is 1999 or so, 98, 99. And um, so we started doing that. And uh, I ran that department for about eight years and uh, lived through Napster and the launch of iTunes. And... Um, in 2006, 
I moved to the Recording Industry Association of America here in D.C., and I was there for 15 years as CTO and um, continued a lot of the same work that I started at Sony Music, a lot of stuff on, uh, a lot of work on standards and new formats. And um, that's how I sort of got to where I am. And then two years ago, I left the RIAA, and since then I've been a strategic consultant. I'm sure you're, you're rocking the world. Uh, so how many different formats have you lived through? Because, you, I mean, you really have seen the entire analog to digital transition. Yeah. So I, when I started out, we still had cassettes and vinyl and CD. We had um, DAT tapes. We had mini-disc. And then in the late 90s, we started to shift to downloads and streaming. Um, perhaps most interestingly, the first major streaming service, Rhapsody, launched in December 2001, which was about a year and a half before the iTunes download store launched. Hmm. And at the time, I thought that, you know, functionally, this Rhapsody service was... It was a desktop version of Spotify. There was millions of songs. You could make a playlist. You could request any song you wanted. And I assumed that within five years, everybody would switch to streaming and that would be it. And uh, it took us about 14 years for the industry to really switch over to streaming. That was a big surprise. So who was behind Rhapsody? Was that Sony? Well, no, that was uh, Rob Glazer and uh, Real Networks out okay. in Seattle. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so why why did it take? Because I remember downloading my CDs, having to like do the whole digital transition, and I still have my first two iPods. Oh, because they have my entire music collection on them that were CDs, which I gave away. Oh, yeah. But now I don't know how to transition them, but that's a story. It's something we'll you don't really later. need them anymore. Luckily, no, so. I know, but you know, yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. Um, I kept my CDs. I always kept two thousand CDs. It's just 2,000? Like just if somebody 2000. showed up with a 2,001, you'd have to like take one out? That's what I did. So <laughs> when you work in the music industry, you buy a lot of music and you get a lot of music for free. So I had 1,800 CD rack at home and a 200 CD rack in my office. And when they got full, mm -hmm. I gave somebody them. Somebody had to go. Something had to go. Okay. All right. That was just how I managed my life. So <laughs> now we're in this crazy world of, I mean, artificial intelligence has been wrong for a long time, but it's, it's all the chatter right now. It is. And there's a lot of concern about how everyone in the industry is going to manage what AI is going to be or is doing to the current music industry. Um, and there's a court cases going on. Um, so where, where do you want to start on that topic? Okay. So I joke when people ask me what's important in the music industry right now, I said only three things, AI, AI, and AI. Okay. Really. So you have priorities. Yeah. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. So the first AI is um, the fact that AI is going to impact or replace pretty much every job in the music industry. Now, impact a lot more than the industry, but that's what I care about. And um, any job that requires industry expertise or creativity is going to be impacted and hopefully not replaced. We'll come back to that. Okay. How can we use these tools to fuel human creativity uh, as opposed to replace it? The second AI is a generative AI, and that's uh, what we're seeing now. 
and um, we'll come back to talk a lot more about that today. That's what I would probably want to talk about if you want to talk about AI. And the third one is the relationship between AI and copyright. And that is the fundamental issue that will decide the future of our industry. Um, if it doesn't work out for the industry, uh, it will be worse than Napster and peer to peer. So when Napster was a thing, my youngest sister was in college and I told her she couldn't do that because that was bad. And she told me like years later that she would like run around at parties and tell her friends, you can't do this. You're stealing. And she, I was like, wow, I had no idea that she ever listened to a word that I said, but it, she to this day. She's like, nope, you told me that. And I couldn't live with myself. Well, I had to tell my kids not to do it. And what I told them was, you understand that I have to testify under oath. And I know one of the questions is going to be, well, don't your kids download illegally? And I have to be able to say no. So I said, you guys, we will always have money to buy music in this house. You just can't steal it. No, that's, that's good. Okay. So, so now we've gone from just the whole idea of copyright, which what's, well, is there anything else? Let's, let's talk about copyright since you say that's priority number one. Let's, let's stay on that topic for a second. Yeah. So a lot of what we're worried about right now, what, that's in the news with AI mm -hmm. is not traditional copyright. There are some copyright issues here, but they're not what we generally think of. So for example, the generative AI tools, in order to be able to create music, whether create a melody, create a sound recording, um, you need to sample, you need to train on something. And effect, in effect, it's impossible to train without making a copy. So it's that underlying copy that is required for the training that is going to be the key. Um, I think that's going to be the fundamental copyright issue in the short term. So that's what we're seeing in the news now where... The Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran or okay. Lucian Gray or um, Grange um, of Universal Music or um, you know, Rob Stringer at Sony Music is talking about, you know, you need to license our stuff if you want to train on it. And, um, you know, it's, it's a new road. It's a new world. There's, there are not licensing best practices in place for this yet. So I suspect they'll start off by doing things like blanket licenses with covenants not to sue and everybody will make their best efforts to figure out how to license this stuff. But, um, but it's going to be a combination of three things. It's going to be a combination of, of, um, of litigation, licensing, um, and, um, and eventually legislation. We can come back to that. Um, legislation, not so much in the fundamental copyright, but we have new issues that we've never had to deal with before. And um, so maybe we can... We can talk about some of that. People will be reading in the news about the fake Drakes. So, um, or all the Kanye West cover versions that are going viral on the internet. Or, um, and we need to talk a little bit about what's going on there. Well, first, if the AI is creating a melody or a resulting sound recording, I say melody because it could write music without performing it, but in these cases, it's mostly being trained on recorded music and pumping out recorded music. Um, companies like Boomi and others are doing this. In order to do that, you have to train on a library of music. 
And that comes back to, do they have the authorization to do that? Um, but we're seeing slightly different issues. For example, we saw uh, Kanye West um, uh, performing Hey Delilah, Plain White Tees song. And we could tell by listening to it that it's Kanye's voice or a simulation of his voice, but it's Plain White T's vocal style that we're hearing. So we have to differentiate between creating the music, which we can come back to if we have time, but more interestingly right now in the news is this idea of the voice or the vocal style. So to simulate somebody's voice as I understand it, talking to all my AI engineer friends, they only need a few sentences of somebody speaking. If anybody's ever dialed their bank and it says my voice is my password and that kind of thing, you know, they, the AI can pretty quickly figure out your voice. Um, so a, f a minute of audio from an interview of Kanye might be enough to train the system on his voice, layer layer it over the vocal style of, in this case, plain white tees, and there you have this new recording. Hmm. Um, that's a separate issue from training on somebody's vocal style. So if you hear, let's take another example. Um, we've got uh, Whitney Houston singing a Mariah Carey song. If it's Whitney's voice, again, we're back to Kanye, but if it's Mariah's vocal style, it seems very likely that they would have trained on minutes or hours of her singing in order to capture all of those, you know, very identifiable vocal style, you know, and anybody with a, with a, an identifiable vocal style. I think we are going to get into a world of rights of personality, which is not a term of art yet. It but, will be after everyone listens to this podcast. It might be right of personality. <laughs> and, and by that, I mean... It's like a right of publicity and a name and likeness. But, you know, I play a game with my, with my son Wyatt when we're in an elevator or a grocery store and I, we hear a little bit of music over the uh, loudspeaker. And I'll just catch a few seconds of it and I'll know that it's Bing Crosby or Ella Fitzgerald or whatever. So I will always test him. Who is that? And he'll go, oh, that's Elvis. Or, um, you know, he'll hear it again. And I'll say, well, whose voice is that? And, Usually he gets it right if it's classic rock or a major artist. Um, you know, I can trip him up with stuff like the Beatles because I'm not sure he can differentiate in his mind between John and Paul. But, you know, not everybody can because we think of that as the Beatles. But That is a specialty. It is a specialty. Mm -hmm. It's a subgenre of, of the elevator game. But um, in much the same way, when we hear certain people's voice or certain people's vocal style or a combination, we feel like we know it's them. So the best example in the news recently was when David Guetta, as a, I want to say a joke, as an experiment, he decided that he would use ChatGPT to write lyrics in the style of Eminem. And then he took those lyrics and he fed them into another AI and he said, perform this in the voice and vocal style of Eminem. And then he played it live at one of his shows. And of course it got recorded and put all over the internet, which was not his intention, he says. You know, he just wanted to play it in the show. But it seems to me likely that the audience 
You have to assume that the audience thought it was Eminem. Why wouldn't they? The lyrics are in his style. It's his voice in his vocal style performing it. So this kind of appropriation and not in the other... Not in the congressional way. Yes. <laughs> yes. To acquire. To yes. acquire. Uh-huh. And not necessarily in the cultural appropriation. But um, th- this, this is kind of a, a passing off. And that's what I, what I think. And it, it takes us back to some copyright cases, the old Tom Waits case and Bette um, Midler case and so on for people who are familiar with this stuff. But um, it, it's dangerous... Because we've seen in the, in the um, visual arts space where AI is trained on a specific artist's style. And then they said, well, give me a, uh, a picture of Iron Man in the style of Shane. And bang, it pops up. And instead of me hiring you and paying you five or $10,000 to draw that picture, suddenly I have it. And anybody who's familiar with your work would look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's a Shane Tews. But it's not. And we're going to see the same thing in music. And that is a real threat to the artist. It's a threat to their artistic integrity because we don't know what words are going to be put in their mouth. It's a threat to their livelihood if it replaces them. And... um, there are other issues. There's moral rights issues, especially in Europe where they believe in moral rights and uh, privacy issues, perhaps. So this is, this is a tricky area, and I think this is an area that is going to require legislation, and it's going to go beyond music, of course. Because, okay, con- I mean, what I worried maybe that was Congress has a hard enough time with some really basic technology concepts. And... I've forever just even tried to figure out the, the music licensing and the payment process. As you know, I've had this conversation with you a bajillion times and the U.S. is different from this guy. So now going to the point where you are delineating, would you say, um, vocal versus voice, and then we haven't even gotten to music, and then asking one of these congressional I, committees? I, I think what we have to do is we have to roll in all the attributes that we associate with a person, with their personality. And um, if, you know, this is in my mind. If you asked a jury, listen to this voice, do you recognize it? And if 11, you know, people said, oh, yeah, I know that voice. That's Mariah Carey's voice. And it's a simulation and somebody's especially using that for commercial purposes. Then I think we're going to have an issue. But I'm not sure that... the current laws, because we're beyond copyright at this point, um, are going to be able to easily deal with that. And we are going to get there because this is going to go far beyond music. Um, So, yeah. A wild, wild west. It's a wild west. (laughs) So how long have you been looking at the AI lens on this? Because I realize... I mean, knowing what you've been through in the past with the digital medium, you knew this was this was on its way. Yeah, so I was always interested in AI. I mean, it goes back to watching Star Trek and Next Generation and watching Data. I mean, it goes back to 2001 and HAL, right, when I was a little kid watching movies. So it's always a fascinating uh, topic to think about. But I would say around 2015 or 16, um, 
a couple of books came out. So Nick Bostrom, who's basically a philosopher at Oxford, wrote one called Superintelligence about the impact of what this technology is going to be. The impact is going to be on society. And um, uh, Byron Reese wrote one called The Fourth Age that I really liked. Um, a little doom and gloom. <laughs> but um, uh, so that had me really thinking about it, I guess, uh, around 2016, 17. In 2018, people in certain people in the copyright space started to think about it. And um, much to their credit, um, uh, the USPTO, I think um, it was Shira. Uh, who had organized a conference in about January of 2019 or so at the USPTO, which was basically IP and AI. And um, that's when people, when more people started to pay attention, but not most people. And then uh, a year later, in January of 2020, the U.S. Copyright Office in WIPO held a conference, and that was on, um, again, AI and copyright and the afternoon, we dedicated the afternoon session to music. And I actually kicked off that session. And I was asked by the, by the general counsel, uh, Reagan Smith at that time, um, if I would just talk about how I thought AI would impact the music industry. And I would just went through the laundry list. I said, everything from giving people ideas for lyrics to writing lyrics to ideas for melodies to melodies, all the way to creating sound recordings, we have AI tools that will remix your music. We have AI tools that will remaster your music. And then beyond the sound recording business, there's AI tools that will help you plan your tour. It'll tell you what cities to go to in what order. Um, it'll tell you what time your show should be, how much you should charge for your tickets. They're not all good. I mean, some of these are pretty crappy. I'm sure you could hire somebody to do a better job than many of these tools. But it's a matter of time. It's... With AI, it's always a matter of time. Somebody hears, you know, Nick Cave hears a recording, you know, based on his work, and he says it's an abomination. And um, I thought, I think he probably meant on two fronts. It was abomination that somebody stole his creativity, but it also sounded like shit. <laughs> and the second one is going to disappear. As the technology progresses, it's going to sound better and better. And um, it is very possible we'll get to the point where uh, generative AI can create music. If it's trained on stuff created by human beings, we can get to the point where the AI can create uh, music that is of roughly equal quality to what the humans are creating, I'm, I'm afraid. And it'll be able to do it at such a volume and speed that it will force human creators... Um, to change the way they do things. So it sounds to me it's like the H&M of fashion, right? Like it's it's good enough. It looks good from afar. If you only wear it a couple times, you're fine. Just don't wear it out. Um, but I don't, I mean, that's interesting because I also think I always in my head go VHS versus beta, right? Like beta was better. Certain industry chose, sorry, <laughs> porn industry <laughs> chose VHS. History was made. And, um, you know, so it, good enough was what sold 
or what people decided to adopt and then all the knock on effects on that particular issue. But so do we do we think that there's a way that people in whether, you know, because music's an art and I'm thinking about the when you're giving the earlier example, it's like the Van Gogh thing where they, they fed a bunch of Van Goghs in and it looked like a Van Gogh. But it wasn't a Van Gogh. Like, but was it good enough that you liked it if you were a fan of Van Gogh? Right. And it, are are people willing to make the delineation between the artists they love and the sound that the these machines are making? Yeah, good enough is going to be a big problem for the music industry. We already have the good enough problem um, in that the economics of music streaming are broken, and uh, this is something that the that the CEOs at major labels, for example, have been vocal about. Um, I call it the shit sandwich. I'm sorry if I'm using language. It's a podcast. They don't have to listen to it. (laughs) Get you in trouble with the FCC or something. Um, But the FCC is listening to everybody's podcast. They're going to be really busy. Everybody has one. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So I call it the shit sandwich because you just um, sandwich some shit between... You know, you just put it between Bruno Mars and Lady Gaga and um, and Beyonce. And as long as people listen to it for at least 31 seconds, somebody gets paid. And uh, it's not necessarily the music that people came to hear, but if it's good enough. So that's one of the threats of AI is to create music that's just good enough that people don't skip it. And then they'll start sort of feeding that in between the good stuff. Um, That's a short-term problem. But the longer-term problem is that um, it's it's going to create music that is competitive with human-created music. And I'm hoping that that doesn't happen for a while. But the pace at which this technology is progressing is incredible. We can talk about that too. It, it almost makes me feel like the music industry is having their Napster moment again, where they just were in denial. Like they're like, nope, people will stick, you know, for whatever reason you were there, I was just a bystander not using Napster. Uh, you know, how do we, how do you learn that lesson from that, that, that changeover of technology and can we get ahead of it? And, you know, I mean, I, the whole idea of having to teach respect one sister at a time, <laughs> on Napster is going to be a little harder than AI. It's, it's, you know, not that I succeeded in the first one. but No, I think that what's going to have to happen is that, that, at least in the sound recording space, and that's, you know, I was a label guy, that's where I came from. Um, they are going to have to do the carrot and the stick. They're going to have to threaten litigation and at the same time start to offer licenses and say, look, here, play nice with us. So the dark web is going to now, besides doing drugs, all the horrible things that it's going to do, it's going to have music and everybody's going to get their download on it because that's where they're getting, they're going to have one more thing they can sell. It, it may happen that way. Let's hope not. I like to think that most people are going to end up on a major platform, whether that's um, so, Spotify so what's the, or what's the carrot? or whatever. Because the way the music industry pays people is crazy. Right. I think I think the carrot is that a lot of these companies, and specifically I'm talking now about generative AI music companies that are making music or making tools to allow people to, to create this music. Um, if they want to raise money, 
and there's a threat of litigation that will make investors nervous. And so I'm hoping that some of them will be motivated to go out and say, okay, let's at least be able to tell our investors that we are in negotiations with the major labels and publishers um, and play nice. Um, um, Is that where your 31 seconds comes in? <laughs> and then the risk analysis? You can do 15 seconds of sampling. Well, yeah. Um, but really the sampling is is very different here because the resulting sound recordings in most cases probably do not contain enough of the material that they're trained on for a standard copyright court to say this is an infringement. So would it pass the Wyatt test on the elevator? For the voice, it would. I mean, I'll give you an example. We go back eight years Mm -hmm. to Sony Computer Science Lab and Sony CSL in Paris um, created a song in daddy's car. And they did this by training on three dozen early Beatles songs. And the result was that they created a composition that was then, I think, recorded by humans and performed. But the composition itself was supposed to sound like a Beatles song. And it sounded like if you know, a bunch of junior high school kids went into a garage with their instruments and said, let's write a song that sounds like the Beatles. And you could tell that they were trying to sound like the Beatles. It was quite awful. But again, that was seven, eight years ago. And that same experiment done now on cutting edge technology, I think you'd get a very different result. But my point in this case is they sampled on something like 36 tracks. None of the identifiable melodies, none of the chord progressions or, or note progressions that you would see in a copyright case, for example, were identifiable. I wasn't listening to that and saying, oh, that's, I want to hold your hand. You know, um, it was, oh my God, that was Twist and Shout. That was what, it, no, it wasn't like that. It was just, they kind of captured the feeling of the Beatles. And now it would be easy enough to do that same sound recording with the voices of John and or Paul, presumably. Not Ringo. <laughs> Just leave his own. Yeah, alone. you know, Ringo had a couple of songs. Um, so let's, let's cause we, we're running out of time here. Sure. Going towards the light. La- what are the opportunities for the music industry? What's the positive? Let's go towards the light. Yeah, so the, the positive is that they... So, so one of my one of my good friends from the old days at Sony Music, Matt Carpenter, um, he he was um, he was my my um, partner in building the digital distribution system for Sony Music, and he had come from working for Michael Jackson. He's probably the brightest audio engineer, computer savvy audio engineer in in the industry. And I was just talking to him, and he said, "I've been trying to tell all the executives." You know, do you want to be on the bus, driving it? Do you want to be driving the bus or do you want to be run over by the bus? Now, I think he's a little optimistic about the driving part. So I've been saying to people, do you want to be on the bus or under the bus? Right. And the way to be on the bus is to probably threaten some litigation strategically, offer licenses, and then embrace the technology, strategic 
partnerships, and then start to figure out if you can use this technology. So there are some opportunities. You know, if I'm a major label and I've got a stable of deceased artists and I've got the permission of their estates to use their voices, this Christmas, the first track on the Mariah Carey Christmas album might be Whitney Houston's voice. Now, I wouldn't... That would ruin Christmas for everyone. We know it has to be Mariah Carey's voice. (laughs) Okay, maybe that's not the best example. But somebody could make a licensed jukebox. Now, I'm sure people will do an unlicensed version of this as well, where you could just prompt it and say the name of your favorite artist and the name of your favorite song. And, you know, I always loved Alone in the Wind. But, you know, I'd really like to hear that by James Taylor. He never recorded it. You type in James Taylor blown in the wind, suddenly you've got that. Wow. And so there are some opportunities like that. Um, There's a lot of opportunities to use AI outside the generative space for the music industry, actually, for doing things like um, cleaning up their metadata and figuring out their royalty accounting systems. The royalty accounting systems at major record companies, for example, were designed originally just to ship physical units of CDs. They weren't really designed to deal with trillions of streams. Mm. And the amount of data and the complexity of that data is such that you, the only way that we're ever going to really clean that up is using AI. So actuarials will be very excited. Accountants are going <laughs> to love this. Well, I, I got to say, you know, one of the questions I get, because I talk a lot about AI, is people ask me, you know, what should my children study? Prompts. Don't, by the time they've studied prompts, mm-hmm. it'll be too late. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that's going to last, the whole prompt thing is going to last for one year. But in a way, maybe, maybe not, but, but um, certainly don't plan on being an actuary <laughs> because if there are any actuaries left in the insurance industry, by next year there won't. There'll be one one person at the front of the room with a room full of computers, and they'll just be, you know, sampling stuff and random checking to make sure it's all working. Well, I know there's a million other things we could talk about. <laughs> this is where we're going to stop today, and we will have you back, and we'll be following what you're working on. And you got to keep us informed because yeah. this is a really, really interesting topic. Yeah, no, um, I would love to come back. I'd love to talk about this uh, this project called AIOK. So uh, a good friend of mine did his PhD at Trinity College, Dublin, and he did his PhD on uh, artificial intelligence and the economics and ethics in the music industry. Well, wasn't he ahead of schedule? Yep. And he, uh, well, he was writing his PhD uh, about two years ago. He decided to write a book. He, um, he actually called me up and interviewed me for that book, and that's how we met, and we uh, since become good friends. And uh, we started this initiative called AIOK, which is a lot of things, but the easiest way to explain part of it is it's sort of the um, fair trade coffee logo for music. Hmm. It's our effort to try to ensure a, a sustainable and equitable ecosystem for human creators. So if people can learn to use AI to augment human creativity, that's good. If the humans get replaced by machines, that's bad. 
it's as simple as that. You've got a fine line there. <laughs> All right. Well, David, thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.